0: It feels like it's been quick, but actually we're seven weeks in to our series. So if you want to catch up, you can go to YouTube and you'll see that there's a, there's a link to all our preachers to kind of figure out what on earth we're going about. So our series is called, What Does God Want? It's a pretty simple question, but it's an incredibly complex, let me say a complex but simple answer. So the simple answer is, God is, what does God want is He wants you and He wants me. Forever, That's kind of who he wants. He wants you. It's not who does he want or what. It's not what does he want, it's who does he want, and that would be you guys. So our journey so far, just to kind of give you a recap, I mean, I'm having to summarize it week by week because we're getting into so much. Um, So these are some of the key, not all of them, some of the key concepts that we've learned so far. As I said, God has always wanted you. Guess what? He still wants you. He has a heavenly family as well as an earthly one. And um, both these help, both these kind of what we'd say administrations help him to administrate his decrees. We've got the divine heavenly council, and then his earthly one is us called the church. All right. Guess what? He doesn't really need our help because he has no need, but he actually wants us to work with him. So that's pretty cool. The garden in Eden. That's where heaven and earth are one. That's where they meet, and that's the temple of God, where he dwells. That was what Eden was originally for. It's a sacred space, and we will look through that. It's also his headquarters, because where God is, his divine counsel is, and where he sets out his decrees, he's got guys helping him, heavenly spiritual beings that help him do that. I know I'm going through this pretty quickly, but I have a lot to get through to today. All right. The serpent's crime. We, re- we looked at last week that he wasn't really a talking snake who had legs, and then once he was cursed, his legs disappeared physically. It's not about the material origin. It's about functionality in terms of who this guy was supposed to be. This was the shining Nakash, the illuminated one, the throne guardian, who was supposed to be there to guard the throne. Um... Guess what? He also suffered from a little bit of sibling rivalry. We said in our families, well, this is where it started. (laughs) He didn't want his earthly family, namely Adam and Eve, to come in and be elevated above him. So he was a little jealous. He also thought that he could do the job better than God. He knew a better way, and he was the better way. So he took his gift of wisdom, because if you want to... Understand where I'm coming from that. Go and listen to last week's preach. He took the gift of wisdom and he perverted it, and which led to both a human and a spiritual rebellion, which we call the fall. Okay. So his failure made him the Lord of death. So what I didn't unpack last week is that he was cast down. He was cast into the realm of the dead. So that made him the Lord of the dead. It did give him a claim over humanity because of death. But this claim over humanity through death wasn't one in victory. It was one in rather humiliation and defeat. So just remember that. He's a sore loser, and this is why. Humanity's crime... It was their departure from a loving relationship where they were supposed to trust their creator. And they decided they could acquire wisdom illegitimately through another means, through another source, not God himself. And rather than joining in with God to to become these fully functional vice regents, these guys who help him administrate his kingdom his way, they decided they're going to do it their way. So you see, can you see the links here? Their failure was that in their failure, humanity was doomed to death, which is why we become under the Lord of the death, of, of death. let's say. Now we get to live, yes, yeah, a disordered life in a world full of sin. So Genesis was about God creating order in, in chaos, bringing order into chaos, and then now we go back into disorder, living in a disordered, chaotic life, and I'm sure we all can attest to that, um, because of sin, because of rebellion. Okay, so I'm, I'm hoping you guys are catching, are, are with me, and if you're not, go back and listen to all the other, the other things. So now humanity has this need to be redeemed. To have now this eternal life that we've always been destined to have. To live with God in Eden and extend Eden. But not all is lost. So I love this quote. This is by a guy called Terence. I'm not even going to try and pronounce his surname. Some of these um, scholars are from Germany and their surnames are... Or even their full names are a little bit tongue twisters, Right? Close your eyes and listen to this, or if you want to read along. It is notice, notable that Adam was not presented as a slob or Eve as a foul wretch. God sending them out of Eden to take up the same task given to them in Genesis 2.15. And Genesis 3.25 recognizes that humanity had not been reduced to a, total, a state of total depravity. Adam and Eve leave the garden with certain integrity, still the bearers of the divine purposes for the world. Moreover, that the flood story does not immediately follow is very important. I'm putting the very there. The situation is not yet what it will be in chapter 6. Rather, the creator of the universe takes on human form, goes for a walk among his creatures, and personally engages them. This is no naive theology. God comes to the man and the woman in their sin. God does not leave them or walk elsewhere. Even in announcing sin's effects, God remains concerned enough to name just what it is that happened. How amazing is that? So that's the foundation. So we can't forget that. So we're going to go through some... Some stuff today that's going to wig our brains out, especially our modern mindsets. And I want you to remember this. God's with us still. He left Eden to be with us still. All right. So after Eden. So after Eden, humanity heads south pretty quickly. I think, I don't know how many years it is, but it's, it's, it's pretty quick. So the resulting curses, again, we figured this out last week, bound the fate of humanity with the seed of Nakash. However, in an ironic twist, I love this, the rule of God is kept alive through humanity. The very thing that the Nakash wanted to eliminate, God now preserves through us, through our childbearing. Isn't he amazing? You see the grace in God's story coming through over and over, layer upon layer. So God's continual response to human failure, and it still is today, it's his pursuit of relationship with us. And it's his invitation to come out of hiding. So that's his continual pursuit. I think of Psalm 23. Mercy, what's it? His goodness and mercy will follow you all the days. It's pursuit. It's the same word. Will pursue you all the days of your life. So, the problem is, and and let me just read this quickly. So, Tim Mackey of the Bible Project, and if you guys are interested, they've actually got what they call Classroom. And if you go, they've got one from Noah, they've got from Adam to Noah, and then it's it's long, it's like over 20 weeks, or I don't know how many, but it's got incredible links of how the... The scripture works and all that. So, if you, you've got the time, I would encourage you to guys to go do it. And it's all of it's free. Um, this is what he says What else is the story of Jesus except for the story of God's justice and mercy meeting together in one life, one death, and one resurrection? Genesis 1 to 11 is giving you these key concepts of God's justice and mercy. So, remember to when you start reading through the text. When you look for God's justice, look for His mercy, because it's there. Okay, so in reading through Genesis 1.11, you start to see this tension between God's mercy and justice playing out, because, and it has to, and it plays out in tandem. So you see God's mercy, but you see God's judgment, but then you see God's mercy, and then you see there's judgment because of human failure and rebellion so that's why you start seeing these links in the texts and if you if you don't know that they're there you can't see them it's like when you you buy a a silver car and then suddenly on the road how many silver cars appear it's the same kind of thing as if you don't know to look in the text sometimes you miss It's, it's actually there all right so the summary so I'm going to give you a little bit of a summary of the pattern between Genesis 1 and 6 because we're going to end up in Genesis 6, right? So the Genesis 1 gives you this beautiful ideal, and it's this ideal realm filled with the possibilities of God's possibilities. It's when we partner with God that we live in this realm of the fullness of His possibilities. See, Genesis 1 wasn't perfect; it was filled with possibility we see because there was sin in, Genesis, you know, in in Eden, there was sin. It wasn't perfect, but oh my word, was it filled with incredible possibilities of God. Genesis 2 bring, pulls us back into this harsh, harsh reality that we find ourselves in now because God's ideal becomes ruined and distorted through rebellion and mistrust. And then Genesis 4-6 is this progressively slippery slope that we start to see as the human humanity becomes more and more removed from God's ideal. You can even look in the text with um, Cain and Abel. So that's immediately, it's kind of the story following the expulsion of Adam and Eve and the curses and all that. You actually start to see this slippery slope coming and it just goes like that pretty quickly. But what's interesting is that that whole kind of scenario between Cain and Abel was about temple worship. And if you read the text pretty clearly, that they had built an altar literally outside the entrance to Eden. Just a little fun fact there. Right. So the pivotal point that we get to today is Genesis 6. I get to unpack probably one of the most complicated, (laughs) uh, misunderstood, controversial books, uh, 4 little verses in the Bible, because it really does wig our modern mind, mental grids out completely. Why? Because we think in a materialistic way, scientific way. These guys didn't. So I want you to take all your scientific or your materialistic, natural thinking, and I want you to just park it on the side. And if you start feeling offended, that's fine. That's good. means God's talking. (laughs) Uh, Because the impact, because as the population grew, evil grew and wickedness grew to the point where God said, oh, I even regret making humans, and it's not quite what we think that is. So this pivotal event in Genesis 6 has one of the biggest impacts on on how we are in the world that we live in with depravity and evil and wickedness. And this this is why we have the amount of evil and depravity is because of Genesis 6. So it's not one OG, not one original gangster, or one original rebel. We've now got a group of these guys. Okay, so let's just read the strange text because, hey, so when it came about, when humanity began to multiply on the face of the land, and the sons of God saw, the daughters of humanity, that they were good, and they took for themselves wives, maybe wives or women, depending on your translation, from all that they, which they chose. And Yahweh said, my spirit will not dwell with humanity forever, inasmuch as he is also flesh, and his days will be 120 years. The Nephilim, of course we know who these guys are, were in the land in those days and also afterwards. When the sons of Elohim went into the daughters of humanity, and they bore children to them or for them, these were the mighty warriors who were from ancient times, the men of the name. And some versions say the men of great renown. Is that not the most confusing thing you've ever read? Cool. Well, it was for me. Maybe I'm the only one? Okay. So we just need to unpack first. We need to settle. So last week I dealt with a lot of what traditional church has taught us versus what actually is the original con. con- context of the Bible. So I'm going to unpack a little bit more of that today. So what traditional churches taught us are the following two kind of um, worldviews, And what they've done is they've humanized this text, because you've got to try and understand it, and then they've demythalized it. So they've removed all the mythical elements of this text. So the first, the supernatural worldview. So before this point and we're talking about the late 4th century, you have to know that all, tradition, all Jewish tradition believed in a supernatural worldview. So all of this, the other two things that I'm going to unpack, these other worldviews that we have today in the church, never even was even in their, on their radar in terms of what they thought this text means. So... Augustine and some of our early church fathers, and they were highly influential at the time because they were fighting different battles. And ironically, there was only a hundred years kind of separating them from the first century to the fourth century, late fourth century. But so much changed, and we're going to unpack kind of why and what this all unpacked over the coming weeks. The first kind of one, so these two modern approaches, let me say, of Genesis 6, and and you can see that all the supernatural elements have been stripped out of this. So the modern worldview is called the, the this first one, and this is your most modern one, is the divinized human rulers view. Okay, so these sons of God aren't actually spiritual beings; they are like in the line of David of kings you know these are head honcho guys but they're human they're not they can't be elohim what because there's only angels people there's only angels and they had wings no okay so israel so this is what they thought they thought they compared them to human rulers they you can see it in psalm 2 verse 7 Israel was called Yahweh's firstborn son. So that's kind of, that's where they're getting their basis for doing, kind of believing this. And the belief is that Genesis 6 is not about, is about human rulers. And they abused their divinely kind of position or appointed role. And then they engaged in polygamy marriages. So that's why it was considered evil. Okay. So the problems with this view, if you look at the text, is that, the text never talks about polygamy. So where they got that from, we don't know. They kind of just had to insert that into the text to make it fit. Now, there are other near Eastern parallels to kind of divine kings who were sort of viewed as gods. But there is no parallel in the Bible in terms of an entire group that was referred to as kind of God's son. All right. So, so the and if you want more information, go read Unseen Realm. And if you want even more information, go read Demons by Michael Heiser. He kind of unpacks it more technically. If I was to get into the technicalities of this, I think you'd all fall asleep. Well, I mean, I wouldn't, but you might. So this, the other worldview, and this one was from kind of the time of um, Saint Augustine, was the Sethite view. So Seth. So you have Cain and Abel, kind of. Adam and Eve's kids, Cain, I always get this right, Cain kills Abel, right? And then Seth is born after After that, okay? So this is like the godly kind of line versus Cain's ungodly line. So what they're saying is that the sons of God are the godly line. They come from Seth, and they worship the true God, and their text is... Genesis 4.26, and it's contrasted with this ungodly line of Cain. He obviously was a murderer. So the issues with this is that Seth and Cain are not mentioned in the text at all. There's no reference to them. There's no even hint or it's not even alluded to. So you can't really bring them in. Um, There's no reference to intermarriage either between two human families. And um, the Sons of God, and all its variations in the Hebrew Bible, and it's over eight times, all appear specifically to do with the Sons of Elohim, which is all about God's heavenly divine counsel. So you can't really... That that view is a little bit debunked, quite badly debunked. But there's more. The biggest... Um, me, I'm trying to think of the word. The biggest kind of argument against both of these views actually comes from the New Testament, which is quite interesting. So the weakness to these humanistic views comes from Paul and Jude. So let's read it. In, I mean, Paul, Peter. Sorry, Paul, not you today. It's Peter. Hey, Pete. <laughs> okay, so in Second Peter, we have this really odd text, right? Says, For God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So very clearly we're seeing that he's talking about the time period of Noah and the flood. But he's talking about angels. And then it talks about... Sodom and Gomorrah, and then he says, And to keep the righteous, unrighteous under punishment until the, the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despising authority. Okay, so there's some, there's some clues here as to what, what's going on. But let's read Jude before we unpack that. So Jude 6 and 7 says, And the angels who did not stay within their position of authority, but left their proper dwelling... He is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires. So these guys seem to be contrasting whatever happened in Genesis, some kind of event in Genesis that had angels involved to Sodom and Gomorrah. So there was humans, there was illicit sex, there was like defiling your authority, coming out from where you, your proper dwelling, if you want to say it like that. So they are talking about the time period of Noah. So the only place in the Bible where all these kind of elements fit and tick the box is Genesis 6. And these guys clearly thought that they were talking about spiritual beings. Not humans. All right. So now that our modern brains are wigged out, let's go. The Watchers. So what are you talking about, Louise? Who watched that movie Noah? I think it was... um, Do you remember thinking, what on earth are these guys... Like, what is this story? Just based on not Christian tradition, but actually Jewish tradition. And a kind of a, let's say, a morph Jewish tradition. But they clearly spoke about the watchers. So who are these guys? So in Enoch, the book of Enoch, yes, we know it's not scripture, but it's okay. The book of Enoch, they refer to the sons of Elohim as the watchers. So that's where we're getting the connection. All right. These were the sons of God, like it says in Genesis 6. And it's only, as I said, referred to... I don't know if you can see the picture, but there we have our wings. (laughs) If you're going to read Ezekiel, you'll see our winged cherubim and seraphim. All right, so what is going on? So 2 Peter and Jude are talking about the following... Guess what? Because they're referring to more than what is said in the text in Genesis 6, because it's short, and they're mentioning other things that Genesis 6 doesn't say. Why are they doing that? Because they have other sources, and the other sources are in the books of, like, Enoch, One Enoch, the Jubilees, the Book of the Giants. And guess what those books are? If you want to compare to what they are today, it's like modern-day commentary. Who reads commentary, biblical commentaries? Seriously, none of you. I think you naturally do because you always go to the footnotes and then the footnotes tell you and then they take you to another book and then it tells you about stuff. Those are biblical commentaries. Do we think that there's anything wrong with them? No. We refer to them. We know it's not scripture, but we use them, we read them, and we refer to it. The same as these books here. The apocryphal books, I think they call them. And guess what? All of these books have been validated through the the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So we are living in an incredibly privileged age because of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I'm not even going to try and kind of figure out how many years ago, but it's under 100 because my math sucks. But it's not that long ago when they discovered all of these. And they're still discovering more caves and still interpreting more scrolls. So this stuff... Is valid, the stuff is real, and it's it's really good. So another thing that the scholars have picked up with the second Peter well Peter and Jude is that these guys were obviously aware of the context of what they were writing in, because they added more to the text than what the Genesis 6 said. They were familiar with Mesopotamia, which is the context of where Noah lived. That's the times. In the context of Genesis 6. Okay. All right. You're all looking at me as if I've grown two heads. It's okay. I don't mind. So we need more clarity on the original backdrop of Genesis 6 in order to unpack what on earth those four little strange verses are going on about. So in order to do that, we have to go to the context of what it was in those days. In order to do that, we have to go and dig into Mesopotamian literature, which is much older than the Genesis text and all that, by the way. So before 2010, this is how new some of the stuff is, there's virtually no mention found in any English commentary on the context of Genesis 6 in terms of the watchers, let's say. So biblical storytelling is an interesting thing. Okay, so no other thing. So their crime, um, I should have gone off my, my slides. So their crime, the sons of God crime, according to Genesis, according to Jude, and according to 2 Peter, is that they indulged in defiling, let's say, lust, illicit sex, um, they despised authority, and it would be god 's authority in this case. They literally didn 't stay in their lane. Does this sound familiar to you a little like a guy who was in Eden? They left their proper dwelling, they transgressed spiritual boundaries into natural boundaries and they this is interesting because remember I put, picked out that one of the un, one of the words for the Nakash is his like his divine knowledge that he imparted to Eve that was forbidden. There's another link here in that they dispense forbidden divine knowledge to humanity, which caused a rapid decrease in, in humanity. All right, so let's get moving because I'm going to unpack how I can say these kind of things. So the context of Genesis 6. So biblical storytelling has both historical and theological purposes. It's not like our kind of reporting that we have today, where they do it in chronological time periods. You know, at 11.06, this happened, at 11.07, that happened, you know, and they go in a chronological order. It's very different. Historical recording and today versus ancient historical recording is of two very different things. We cannot compare them. They are worlds apart because historical, ancient historical recording always had a theological slant to it. And that was far more important than the actual chronological event that occurred in order, in sequence. All right. They were known, these guys, <laughs> biblical writers were known to be quite cheeky. In that, and I used the word polemic. So Jen is like, well, I don't know what that word means. Well, guess what? In my lectures, I had to kind of, luckily I could press pause, and then I'd like, what does this word mean? So polemic is basically a very strong argument against um, Something. It's like you counter something very strongly. It's like a, a critical attack on something through a literary kind of means. And um, the biblical writers were known for writing polemics against the surrounding culture, the surrounding um, religions, and specifically against their gods. So it was, it was a literary device that they used. And it was, their strategy was a theological strategy was to undermine the surrounding culture and the gods of the surrounding culture. They would literally borrow lines and motives and the way they set up the stories, the genealogies. They would literally copy, almost copy and paste, but then they would change it. And then almost like, it was like a, a thumb, you know, it was like a bit of a, a rude, well, meh, your God, you says your God's this, but actually my God's bigger than yours, kind of thing. So they would take it, copy it, borrow stuff, and then almost like point their tongue in them in their face and go, "You guys don't know anything. Your God is really lesser than our Yahweh." So that's kind of the the idea behind it. So when somebody comes up, and it showed a lot of contempt for the surrounding culture and their gods. So if somebody comes to you and says, that the Israelites, writers, the Bible's not true because they borrowed stuff and they copied and pasted. You could go, yeah, we, we know. There's a little bit of an apologetic kind of thing here. You go, yeah, you don't have to fight it. It's true. But they did change things to show up the other gods and the other cultures. Okay, they did it deliberately. It was a thumbs, it was a, like a, I, I, I have other, Things there, but it would be incorrect of me to think of this. So Genesis 6 is actually a case study of this type of technique. All right. So the story of creation, as I said, the genealogies before the flood, the actual flood itself, and even Tower of Babel are all found and all have connections to all the older Mesopotamian context and literature. Nothing new about that. You don't need to defend that. It's okay. In the time of Noah, they had several multiple flood stories. They even had ones with a large boat, complete with animals and people who rescued them, and like a person who was going to rescue them. There are differences in the story. The differences are shows up how amazing Yahweh is and how less their God is. But there's lots of those stories. There's lots of giant stories. Go and look in the world history, religions. You'll see it plastered everywhere. Every single religion in the world has a flood story. Okay. So, in Mesopotamia, they had those guys. And I practiced trying to say this name. And even this morning, it didn't come out well. So, where's the... The guy there, can you pronounce that, Anthony? Uh, hmm? Uh, Yeah, you see, I'm not the only one. I listened to Michael Heiser say it, and it sounds, yeah? I I listened to, like, pronunciation (laughs) on Google. I still can't get it. Anyway, so these spiritual beings, there's seven of them. They call them either that name or the seven sages, which is a much better, easier word to use. So I'm going to use that. These were legendary creatures, spiritual beings, They were cultural heroes before the flood. And they were endowed with extraordinary wisdom. It's quite interesting. Uh, Am I going the wrong way? Okay. So let me go back there. So every single one of the parallels to the Genesis story and to all the Mesopotamian stories all have parallel links. They all coincide. It all is saying the same thing. So the thing is that before the flood, they had these seven sages who were all only spiritual divine beings. After the flood, they had four, and those guys became partly human because they had mated with human women and produced offspring who were part, like, demigods, part human, part divine. Sound familiar? So... These guys also taught humanity certain forbidden knowledge. Now, we would use the word forbidden knowledge. They kind of thought it as special knowledge. I'm more special than you because I know more than you. So in their culture, they wanted to say, well, our culture is better than yours because we have the special hidden knowledge that we have taught, that these guys, these sages have taught to us and it makes us greater than everybody else. So that's kind of the context. So our struggle with this material is difficult because part of the problem with Genesis 6 and even to a large degree 2 Peter and Jude is that there's a presumption that you know the backstory behind the culture and you know the backstory behind kind of their context in terms of their understanding of how they, all their hyperlinks worked in the Hebrew Bible. We don't have that, so we have to go and find it and kind of understand Mesopotamian history and stuff like that. We don't have any of those grids. So we have to kind of find the grid and then work with the information with these new grids that wig our brains out. So Enoch 1 material, these parallels are incredibly um, relevant and evident there. And so Noah himself laments about the watches and their impact on humanity. He's like, the judgment of the flood is in part because of humanity acquired the knowledge of all these secrets of the angels. It corrupted people. It taught people (laughs) to kill each other much better. And what did it, these are the elements you can see here, tools of warfare. Potions and drugs for altered states. The art of seduction. Sorcery, divination, and astrology were all taught in. This is what Enoch tells us. All taught by these watchers to humanity. It was hidden knowledge. It was forbidden in God's kingdom and God's realm. So where does this take you to in terms of your mind? I think of some of the cultic rituals that we have in Freemasonry and in Wicca, kind of culture and. Satanism. This is the origin of all that stuff. And what it did was it drove people away from God towards idolatry. Because it was used in the surface. So these Elohim were set in there by God. These watchers were given in a position of authority by God to look after and care for and watch and guard humanity. But it is always meant to be that you point humanity towards God. And what they did was they took worship for themselves. And they used all these elements to help that. To bring about a false worship. A false altered state of Eden. Okay. So but now we've been talking about the watchers. How does the Nephilim kind of fit in? So these are the watchers' offspring. So when the watchers had sex... So they managed to embody themselves enough to have sex with a woman so that she could fall pregnant and have an offspring that now is both... Um, sorry, I'm laughing because I realize there's some teenagers in the room. <laughs> I'm talking about sex with watches. and So now they could... These offspring was a perversion, a combination. You think about Jesus. Perversion of Jesus in many ways of the human and the divine. So they were giant warrior offspring. Think Goliath. He had brothers. Then you've got the Anakites, the Rephim, the Amorites. All of these guys were descendants from Nephilim. All of them. And you think about the war that God waged against these cities and these, this culture these cultures. It was because they had this perversion of the divine and the human- humanity mixed in. We have a, another origin story coming out here now. Demons. So we think of demons from Satan, Satan and these little minions, the little mini-demons, and he's got them all around, and they kind of were there from the beginning. They kind of fell with Satan, and then they became his little minions and kind of cause chaos in the world today. But actually, that's not the true origin of demons. So after the flood, the watch, the, the Nephilim died. Because remember, part human, their bodies died. Their spirits didn't. It was only the watchers who were chained to gloomy darkness and held there until the, the great judgment day. But it doesn't say anything about the spirits of the Nephilim. So they roam the earth. That's where Jewish belief gets the idea of demons. Guess what? Demons want to possess and embody things and people. This is why, because their origin had a body originally, a physical body. You think of Jesus when he was um, speaking to the legion of demons and that one guy, And what did he do? He sent them into pigs. They need to be embodied. That's why they are like restless and they hunt around looking for embodiment. This is the origin. This is where it comes from. Um, We look at Numbers um, 13. Um, I think I'm lost in my slides. Let me just... Okay. So Numbers 13 talks about how the spies in the land gave a bad report. Remember they go into Canaan. So the biggest threat to... what? am I saying something funny? (laughs) The biggest threat to the Israelites were the Nephilim or the descendants of the Nephilim going into Canaan. And um, so when they saw, so they, they kind of come back and, they, you know, you've got the guys who give the, you've got two guys, Joshua and Caleb, who give like amazing, we can do this, guys, this is amazing. This is God's land, his promise. But the other guys are like, oh, guys, we look like grasshoppers. Why? Because they saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who are from the Nephilim. I'm talking about descendants of the Watchers or offspring. They were scared of them. Why? Because they, had, they were known as giants, but not, yes, they were big. I mean, you've got the king of Gog, I think he had like, a, they describe how big his bed is and whatnot. They had six toes. They were not normal human beings because they literally weren't normal. Guess who kills them off? Who kills, who kills Goliath? And then when his, uh, David's army kills the rest of Goliaths, Brothers, you never hear of the Nephilim or the descendants of the Nephilim again in the Bible. Pretty cool. So these giant warriors, offspring of the watchers. So what does this mean? I mean, why should we really care? Well, the dispensing, actually, it actually comes down to a couple of things. And the one is this dispensing of divine knowledge to humans caused such a rapid descent in humanity and it created such depravity. I mean, you have Cain, and Cain killing Abel, but he kind of did it. And in, in many ways, we don't need help. We don't need help sinning. We don't need help in our rebellion. But these guys thought we actually did. Let's just make it worse. Romans 1 says, mankind invents ways of doing evil. This is because of this influence that we have coming into the world. It promoted promiscuity and violence. What are we seeing in our world today? The crisis of the watches was resolved when God sent the flood to cleanse the earth. Now, these links to the land as much as it is to humanity as well. And I can't unpack that because there's just so much here. But so we had direct watches. Now, God solved the crisis that they couldn't now produce any more offspring. So through the flood, they were chained to gloomy darkness until, <laughs> you know, they are chained. But we still have the issue of now demons. And they have found a way to teach humans through rituals and through this knowledge that has come through the flood. And because it says there, the Nephilim were there on the day bef- like before the flood and afterwards to teach us humans how to do evil and be more depraved. So to the Hebrew writers, this was horrific transgression. And it was even worse through this whole idea that we were speeded, like they helped us with our depravity. And the whole idea was not, was to kill each other. And that's what we're seeing today. So this massive crime against humanity and ourselves is kind of been solved to some degree, but now there's, there's more. And now we have to end, because I'm not going to talk about much of the flood, but so just to say that the flood was God's way of cleansing the earth. But now we have to end in, despite... All of this evil, despite this wickedness, despite everything. God views a guy called Noah. Noah's name means man of rest. With favor. You see, we have a ruined world and a God who grieves. You see, that word regret isn't talking about God regretting like what we think of it. It meant he grieved at what was happening to earth and to us. And he knew... Where it was heading, and he had to stop it in its tracks, in one sense. So he was grieving over this. So, despite all of this, despite all the chaos, despite all the, and they call it decreation, God d- brings about a man called Noah to come and bring comfort to humanity. Yes, it's only in seven people, but he wants to start again. The flood creates conditions to be able to restart for reorder and renewal in our land. See, for it's the righteous remnant that God provides a place of refuge. And then, if you read in the, I think it's, I can't remember Genesis 7 or 8. If you read, the mandate to Noah is the same as the creation mandate. Be fruitful, increase in number, and fill the earth. It hasn't changed. The storyline hasn't changed. So I'm going to end this today because we're in like a trilogy. You know, we're in the middle of of a thing where, you know, it always feels like there should be more. Well, there is lots more, so just hang tight. But I want to end this quote from Tim Mackey. Just to kind of land us back in to God's grace, God provides a safe refuge for his image bearers and animals, for those animal lovers out there, who live together in peace in this divine refuge that is now on the surface of the water. And this becomes the birth of a whole new creation. So, I'm going to hand over to Anthony because I always feel like my endings are awkward because it feels like it's in the middle of something, which it is. Next week, we're going to deal with Deuteronomy, well, Genesis 11 with links to Deuteronomy 32 and Psalm 82. So, it's going to be good, but then we start unpicking everything that Jesus did. Because remember what I said last week, Messiah, not in their belief with the, the Jewish tradition, was that they believed that the Messiah didn't have to undo not just the one fall, which he did. We have to look at how he undid the fall, this rebellion, and how he undid the third rebellion as well. But we've got to get through all these rebellions to be able to understand them, to understand how much more Jesus did. So I'm going to leave you with that.